0: Hello, and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. I'm Tara Lambert, the editor, and I'm joined by one of our excellent journalists who's often referenced on this show by me and Angela, Madeline Hislop. Hey, Mads.
1: Hi, Tala. How are you?
0: I'm very well. On the agenda today, we look at some big resignations in politics. We reflect on whether the government will indeed set the standard. And we take a closer look at women's mental health at work, reflecting on some of the sessions of our awesome Women's Health at Work Summit last week and some new research out today. Mads, let's jump to the wins of the week.
1: What is your win? So my win this week is actually from last weekend and it's about the Matildas who played sadly not the best game of their career on Saturday, but they did manage to break an excellent crowd record of having the most people ever attend a women's football game in Australia. So it was in Sydney and 36,000, I think a little bit more than 36,000 people turned up, which I think is an amazing feat. And it was against the US, so I imagine mostly it would have been Australians. Not many international fans would have been there. So, yeah, that's really exciting.
0: I feel like women's sport has just gone from strength to strength over recent times. And you've been across so much of it because you edit our Sporty Wrap each week. Do you think that women's soccer sits in a different space or do you see this kind of evolution with so many different
1: codes? So I do think that the Matildas in particular have probably a bit of a bigger following than many other codes in Australia at the moment. The women's cricket team is quite popular, but I think in terms of numbers, the Matildas would probably outdo them. But yeah, I do think it is, um, you know, a sign of a wider trend for sure.
0: Yeah, I love watching it all. And just especially like, you know, even particular players, you just see Sam Kerr just kicking so many goals figuratively and literally, and she is just amazing. So, yes, well done to the Matildas, and that is just a massive win for women's sport this week. My win this week comes from Angela Merkel, and a lot of wins in my life come from Angela Merkel, but this <laughs> this one is just I think it's the best Parting gift that she's given everyone. So it's her farewell ceremony tonight in Germany. And this is like a long standing tradition in the country. And every leader is requested to select three songs that they want to send them off. And Angela Merkel went for one song that was completely left of field and has stunned so many people, but it's also just delighted so many more. And she picked a song by punk rocker Nina Hagen. It's called You Forgot the Colour Film. I won't attempt the German pronunciation of it, but it is just a really, I mean, who would have really likened Angela Merkel and thought that she would pick such a a song? But I think it's just amazing. And, And Hagen was described as an incomparable performer, a new mother, an activist, a clown, a disciple of Christ, a true believer in UFOs and without question a star. And I think that just gives some excellent clarity behind Merkel's patent affinity with the artist. But yeah, look, 200 guests are set to attend the event and you know, I think we've we've written a lot about Angela Merkel and her leadership and her legacy. She served for 16 years as the German chancellor. And throughout her time in the role, she's been considered the most influential European leader of the 21st century. She's also just been such a a steadfast figure. And I think just such an important figurehead for all women to look at and aspire to. And not just women. I think she's been an incredible leader and so many people will miss her greatly. Mm. What have been some of your favorite Angela Merkel moments?
1: Well, she's just been such a constant figure in my life, you know, for the better part of half of my life, she's really been in that role. And I think there's some really great photos of her, you know, at the G7 with world leaders, that photo of her opposite Donald Trump with all the men standing around her. Yeah, I think that one's amazing. And there's some really good ones of her with Obama. They seem to have quite a nice friendship. And I, yeah, I like looking back on those
0: yeah it is so sad that she's she's leaving but I mean I guess all good things have to come to an end. and I guess this kind of randomly leads us into a segue on our next story for today and a little bit of breaking news coming to us this afternoon with the news that Liberal Minister Alan Tudge is actually standing aside amid allegations from Rachel Miller who has come forward and said that she was in an abusive relationship with the minister. So Scott Morrison has made the call to investigate Alan Tudge and he's asked him to stand aside while that process is going on. I guess that's a good thing. It's a a positive sign that the immediate action that the Prime Minister has taken and we know from past experience that hasn't always been his first port of call, certainly with Christian Porter who also faced historical rape allegations, he was not asked to step aside at the time, and there was an independent investigation into him from the government. In saying that, we've lost Alan Tudge, or at least he's having to stand aside for the time being. We've also heard news today that Christian Porter is also set to retire at the next election, as is Health Minister Greg Hunt. So there is an exodus in the LNP at the moment, Mads, what is your take? It is just a hot mess.
1: Yeah, it is a hot mess. And this all it's all happened so fast. And I think, especially in terms of taj anyway, I think it's definitely notable that it, you know, it came just two days after Kate Jenkins released her report into the workplace culture at Parliament House. And, you know, I shouldn't say that I was shocked by some of the things in that report, but actually reading some of the quotes that were included from staffers, they were really quite shocking, to be honest. But I do think, you know, there's obviously this culture in Parliament and it's just normal. And, you know, I think we really have to pay a lot of respect to these women who are, you know, putting their careers and themselves on the line to bring these things forward.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, Rachel Miller actually said that in coming forward today. She said at the time that she first broke news about her relationship with Alan Tudge which, you know, she she did come forward and say that they were having a consensual affair at the time, but she also said that she wanted to be an advocate at that point but she just didn't have the strength to do that and I mean, look, completely understandable when you look at what she was up against and the horrible kind of situation that she'd found herself in and the lack of, you know, she wasn't able to find work and, um, and there were just all these rumors circulating. Um, But she has said today that the Kate Jenkins report set the standard, which you just alluded to Mads, and we'll talk a little bit more about really was the catalyst for her to come forward today and, and talk more about what really went on in her relationship with Tudge and the fact that it was, you know, far more sinister than was made out at the time. And certainly, you know, Scott Morrison got up at that point when the, the first allegations of their relationship came out and said, oh, you know, this is just what people do. These things happen to people. You know, he I mean, he didn't condone their relationship, but he said, essentially, it was just human fallibility. And we know that from what we're hearing inside Parliament, from what we're hearing from these victim survivors, from what we're hearing from this report from Kate Jenkins, it is just so much more insidious than that. It's It runs so much deeper. And yeah, look, I, I want to talk a little bit about the report from, from Kate Jenkins. I mean, it's been dissected a lot in the media over recent days, but I think it's good to just kind of have a bit of a rehash on what some of those findings were, because as you said, Mads, they were pretty disturbing. So one of the findings I think is the most staggering is that more than half of those working in Commonwealth parliamentary workplaces, so 51%, including Parliament House and electoral officers, have experienced at least one incident of bullying, sexual harassment or actual or attempted sexual assault. I mean, that figure, 51%, is just
1: revolting. Yeah, it's wild. It's it's massive. And I think also just the one in three staffers that said they had been sexually harassed, like, that's quite staggering as well. Because if you think of the breakdown of, you know, people working in Parliament House, it means that there are a lot of female staffers there that are experiencing this and have experienced it.
0: Yeah. No wonder, you know, young women are not wanting to pursue roles in politics right now. I mean, who would? Like Mads, you're 23, 24? Yeah, yeah, 24. You write about politics for a living. You're one of the most politically astute people I know. Would you consider a role in
1: politics right now? No, I don't think I would. It's honestly, the past year has been quite hard to take, I think. And yeah, I don't know many people my age who would be, you know, looking to do that right now. And it's not because I'm not interested in politics itself. I do think that it's probably the way to make, you know, the greatest change that you want to see in society is to actually go into politics. But, you know, at the moment, it's just not something I would ever consider. No. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I think the power imbalance that we just hear so much
0: about between senior advisors or senior ministers is just horrendous. The whole thing was just really staggering. And I haven't really heard much from Scott Morrison yet about what the coalition plans to do and how they plan to address or implement the recommendations made by Kate Jenkins. 28 recommendations were made here, but we know from past experience with the Respect at Work report that languished on a desk, the Attorney-General's desk for for more than a year, that the government is not always really quick to the party on recommendations like this. What do you think? Do you think that Scott Morrison will?
1: Well, I think this week Kate Jenkins did make it very clear that the recommendations weren't to be cherry-picked and she said they work together and that's the only way that, you know, we would actually see change. But, you know, we are coming up to an election. So I do feel like Scott Morrison will be quite aware of, you know, that people will be watching what he's doing here. But I also just haven't seen any positive signs that he will, you know, take these as seriously as they need to be. Because these recommendations are, they're really big recommendations. There's a lot of work that needs to go into them. And it's going to you know, it's going to take just full on commitment and, you know, I haven't really seen signs that the government is committed to doing this.
0: It does seem like, I mean, even this week, and I know we've talked about this, this topic a lot um, already, but I do think that it was the biggest news item of the week and certainly for women. I was just so horrified by the treatment of Jackie Lambie within A few hours of that report being handed down in the Senate this week, Jackie Lambie was giving a speech about social housing and during that she was interjected by a Liberal senator and he was allegedly growling at her like a dog. And Sarah Hansen-Young was the first to kind of get up and, and put a stake in the ground and say, look, this is just not on, especially on this day of all days how can this behaviour be happening? You know, we need to really take a good hard look at ourselves. And then Penny Wong backed her up afterwards saying that she'd have heard the same interjection and that that senator needed to fess up. So I just think, again, that's just such an example of what is so wrong with the culture of parliament that these men just don't seem to understand the full weight of the crisis, and I'm still not really sure whether or not anyone on either side of politics fully grasps that women are going to be the clincher at the next election. I mean, certainly, you know, we've seen some really good policies come out of the ALP and Anthony Albanese has pledged to, you know, commit significant reform to childcare and social housing, which will considerably benefit thousands and thousands of working families and women which is an amazing sign. But I do just wonder whether or not it's hitting home for the Liberal Party that this is going to make or break them. What do you think? I mean, time's kind of running out on this.
1: Yeah, time is running out and it just doesn't seem like there's any shift. I think they still, for the most part, consider these issues to be kind of like a niche and not something that the, you know, general Australian public actually cares about. But you know, women are fifty one percent of the population and I don't think it matters which way you sway politically. I think disrespect is disrespect and all women know that. And you know, that's gonna unfold in at the election, I'm sure it will. Like it's 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 not a niche issue as I think Scott Morrison views it.
0: Yeah. I know it does seem baffling that it is women's issues are still kind of touted as being this kind of niche basket of things to deal with you know the past year has just shown us that there are so many things to consider here you know the fallout of the pandemic has impacted women so profoundly you've got this uprising of women that are just so furious about what is happening in society and and what they're up against and we've seen that with the Women's March for Justice we've seen that through you know so many incredibly strong Women, whether it be journalists or whether it be advocates and and victim survivors like Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins coming out and really pushing for change and doing that in just such a a monumental way so you would think you would think that a progressive government or anyone who is seeking to be re-elected even would get the memo but Yes, we will wait and see. Mads, I want to just talk quickly about our Women's Health Summit that went ahead last Friday. And that was just such a, a great event. We had over 900 people registered on the day and we had a wide variety of sessions focused on what both employers and government can do better to support women's health at work, but also looking at at kind of individual women's health issues and some of the kind of tangible advice and things that we can implement into our day to better support our health and wellbeing. But one of the sessions that we talked about and Georgie Dent actually moderated was around burnout and really kind of assessing this impact of burnout off the back of COVID. And we did our own research earlier in the year on women's ambitions and we found that 39% of women in this country were either fearing burnout or were experiencing it. I mean, that's a pretty grave statistic in itself because we've spoken about this a fair bit, but when you have that many women coming forward and saying that they're on the cusp of burnout or they're experiencing it, then you have to presume that that's going to have a really noticeable effect on you know, workplace productivity, workplace talent, innovation. And I think it's a huge crisis, looming crisis, shadow pandemic, if you will, that government really needs to look at. But there was an interesting article out today and some research, I should say, from ACAP that looks at the issue of mental health and how employees perceive employers to be acting on the mental health of their workforces and it's a pretty worrying study because almost half of Australians think only lip service and box ticking is being paid to mental health by employers that they're not actually putting in meaningful policies or directing true empathy into this problem what do you think that says
1: hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a big start. nearly half of all Australian workers, you know, that's a lot of people and I, I think like, you know, at the moment they're calling it like the great resignation or the great exhaustion or whatever you'd want to call it. So I think perhaps employees are sort of, you know, realising how they want to live their lives and post-pandemic it might be a little bit different to how that was before and if, you know, they need to take time to look after their mental health then I think you know employers need to be accommodating that at work but yeah one of the other stats from that report was that almost i think it was more than half 53% said that they would hide a mental or physical health condition to avoid being judged and that judgment it's obviously very real so i do think employers need to start changing the way that they're thinking about this because at the end of the day they're going to need workers you know <laughs> yeah
0: I think it's just, I mean, it is a bit baffling to me, unserious employers have been up until this point about women's health at work, because we've seen so many studies recently around women dealing with issues like menopause or heavy periods or endometriosis, PCOS, you know, and they're really struggling to communicate their problems to their managers And it's having a really detrimental impact on their careers. You know, we've come quite a long way. A lot of big employers, at least, have come a really long way on diversity and inclusion policies. There are some really, you know, exciting, innovative things out there to better support workplaces and and to better support women. And I just think that this is one of those areas that is just being missed at the moment. So hopefully we'll see a bit more being done there. Certainly the appetite and the sheer volume of women that wanted to come to that Women's Health at Work Summit last week shows us that there is a problem here that we need to do more and that women need better support.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I was just thinking that you know, I think maybe big employers have been probably thinking about these issues for a little bit longer than maybe perhaps many small businesses are. And, you know, a lot of Australians are employed in small businesses. And I think there's perhaps like a perception that, you know, this is something that big employers take on. But I do think it's important for it to be considered across the spectrum, no matter what kind of business employers are running.
0: Yeah, absolutely right. Mm -hmm.
1: Mads, I think we might move on to our
0: Finn story and hack for the week. And our new Finn hack segment is supported by Superhero, which is the app that makes investing accessible and affordable for everyone. And we do thank Superhero so much for supporting this podcast this entire year and also enabling us to bring some really great content around money and financial independence for women every week. So this week, I am looking at another study that's come out just from Finder and I found this a little bit staggering that millions of Australians are unaware that they're able to supplement their partner's superannuation. And apparently a national survey was done through Finder of over a 1,000 respondents, and it found that only 6% of Australians, which is equivalent to 1.2 million people, are currently using their super to supplement their partner's super. Now, 6% is a very, very low figure. When we consider that so many women, especially, are often on the back foot with super, they're often the ones that take time out of the workforce to raise families or to care for elderly relatives. And they are far more likely to retire into poverty. And it just seems to me that this is a conversation that every woman needs to have. Um, every partnership needs to have. Mads, what's your kind of take on it? As a, as a young woman, would you feel comfortable having this kind of conversation
1: with a partner? Yeah, it's interesting. Personally, i I wasn't actually aware that you were able to do this. To be honest, like it's maybe I'm just at a stage in my life where I'm a little bit too young to be thinking about that because obviously I don't have kids or anything yet but I do think it's probably just important to have these conversations early on and just make sure that you know your partner is across these issues as much as you are because I think you know perhaps I would talk about superannuation with my female friends and we would talk about the issues about you know inequality there and the fact that women often retire with less super than men and I think women my age are maybe aware of that. But I'm not sure I could say the same for my male friends, and um, I don't think they would necessarily be having those conversations. So I do think it's probably just something that needs to be started early.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. And I mean, you work in the space that we work in, so we're always covering topics like this. So for you to say that you're not really familiar with being able to do this is, I think, pretty illuminating because... If you're not across it, then it's little wonder that that so many others aren't across it either. But I do think, you know, we do just need to be having those conversations, which kind of leads me to my tip for the week, which is just around talking to your partner about money early in a relationship. I think it is so critical to gauge that early on and just to see where you both sit and where the gaps are in your values, if there are any. Because I think. Sometimes we kind of go with the flow for too long before realising that there are too many kind of very significant values gaps that just can't be overcome. And for some people, we do know that people get trapped in relationships and a lot of women become financially very insecure because of of those gaps in their relationships and they're they're financially abused by their partners, which is just... Horrifying, but you know, it's not to say that having these conversations is going to be the absolute clincher in avoiding that. Um, But I do think it's an important first step. And for young women, especially, I think just from the outset of any new relationship to start gauging that. So, you know, you can have a, a frank talk about what your goals are, you know, both short and long term, what they value in life, how they manage their money now. And I, I think if you're already in a long-term relationship and your partner is the one that manages the money, it's time to kind of talk to them about shifting and sharing that responsibility. So you could suggest talking to a financial planner together or setting some time aside to work through a budget and get on top of your finances. This is one that I always urge my mum to do because I think women in that generation they are often not the ones that are across their money my my dad has always been across their shared finances and my daddy's not at all financially abusive but I just think that that has been the status quo for so long it's been quite hard to shift and I I'm always having that conversation with my mum and just trying to urge her to get more kind of financially across what what their kind of shared portfolios are and I think I've had some impact mainly because I'm an absolute, (laughs) I'm an absolute tyrant. She probably that's yes, very jack of me but but yeah i think you know reclaiming some autonomy will not only empower you but it will also help protect you from financial loss um, should your relationship ever break down so that is our fin hack segment for the week thanks again to superhero for bringing us this week's tip and you can learn more about your options at superhero.com.au or download the superhero app um, just to finish off for the day and thank you again for joining me at short notice. But do you have any recommendations? Are you watching or reading anything fun at the moment?
1: Yeah, so I have two. I've just started watching the first series of Succession, which is on Binge. Oh. It's really good. <laughs> um, I'm only about five episodes in, but it's really, really good. I was recommended it by quite a few different people so I thought I would give it a go you No,
0: know, and and actually recommended succession a couple of weeks ago on this podcast so people are going to think that we're going to get some kind of endorsement <laughs> advertising money out of succession I promise you we're not our team just really likes it <laughs> but I, I do need to get across that one it's on my to-do list so I will start watching soon
1: I do have another. Um, so I've been reading Leck Blaine's quarterly essay, which just came out, I think about a month ago. And Lech Blaine is a journalist and his quarterly essay is on the topic of top blokes in Australia and the sort of myth of the larrikin in Australian culture and how that sort of plays into our politics. And I think it's a really really interesting read and yeah I'm thoroughly enjoying that one.
0: Yeah I'd like to read that because I think my biggest peeve in politics is when they say "fed income." like it honestly does my head in and it's still so widely used and no one actually says it except old people in politics. It's bizarre, but yeah, it feeds right into that kind of larrikin culture and you know, how we need to profit up, but it is such a male-centric kind of culture and I think we need to to look at how we can make politics more inclusive. Yes, for sure.
1: Yeah, this is um a really interesting discussion, particularly around Scott Morrison and how he utilizes the, you know, idea of a Larrican for political advantage, when perhaps it's actually not necessarily who he is or how he was brought up
0: yeah I'm, I'm gonna get my hands on that one too I'm not gonna give any recommendations because I just get mocked um every week about how bad my recommendations are so that's why I have brought Matsy because she's you know far smarter than me and comes up with good things but thank you so much again Mads and a reminder to anyone listening today that you can access all of our stories on womensgender.com.au or subscribe to our daily newsletter and check out our other podcasts as well the leadership lessons which looks at critical issues framed by women for the decade ahead as well as our newly released health podcast the women's health
1: project thanks
0: very much